everybody and welcome back to another episode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I'm Sarah Shaw and I'm Lydia Jordan and today we are continuing our month of screwball comedies with a great one, uh, 1939 Bringing Up Baby. Oh my god, the most chaotic movie ever made probably. I would call this movie unhinged. <laughs> Which is, like, the next <laughs> level of chaos in my mind. I agree, but it's executed to perfection, I would say. Yeah, this it's film so is, funny. is such an enjoyable watch. I'm so glad that we have this in the lineup. I haven't seen it in a really long time, and it, it's a film that, to me, holds up really well, so I'm excited to talk about it. I'm excited as well, um, but before we jump into the movie, Lydia, can you tell us about what we're drinking today? <laughs> Well, today we're drinking a bit of a weird cocktail. I don't know if I would recommend this one, but I saw this recipe for creamy lemonade on um, Instagram and I was intrigued because you basically put like a whole lemon with the rind on into the blender to make this creamy lemonade. And it's okay. I, again, yeah. would I recommend it? It's interesting. Perhaps not, but I'm glad I tried it. So it's... I am too. Yeah. It's, so it's coconut milk... The whole lemon yeah, and sugar and water, sugar and water. But I used honey. I think it's pretty good. I think it would be better. And then we and then we added vodka to make it an alcoholic beverage. But I think it would be better if you just like double strained it, or if you really wanted to put in the effort to get like a cheesecloth and strain it through the cheesecloth. But the 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 flavors are really good. I just feel like it's missing like something, and I just can't figure out what it is. That's what I was just gonna say. It feels like I can't figure out what would make it. Maybe like a little bit of elderflower. It, to me, there's something that it's like very one note right now, and it's like missing the complexity that I like in a cocktail. And it's just yes, like it's okay. I also I don't know why, but I think just like to me, lime lime and coconut. Would maybe be like a better pairing. I don't know. Like it's just something about it. Is it because of the song? <laughs> the lime and the coconut. It could be because of yeah. the song. I don't know. Just like something about it. Feels I weird. I think I. No, I agree, and I think I would definitely like to try this with lime instead of lemon to make, like, a creamy lime. Because that, kind I of think, thing. would be fun, and then maybe you could add, like, rum or something. But, yeah, it's just, it's, it needs, like, bitters, or it needs something. It's just, like, missing yeah. that, like, I don't know what it is. full mouthfeel for me. But it's, like, kind of one of those things where I don't know what it is, but I don't, like, I like the drink enough where I don't care to, like, really try it, try it again to yeah. make changes. No, I agree. <laughs> but... It'll do for today. It's tasty, like it's drinkable, and it's actually pretty refreshing, refreshing, like if you're wanting to mix it up. Um, And it'll get me a little tipsy because I don't drink vodka very often. Yeah, and I haven't really been drinking, so I'm, yeah, get ready for for an episode as unhinged as the film. Is what I, I am will, hoping for. <laughs> honestly, in in perfect like spirit of this movie, when I went to the store to buy lemons, I like I watched the video you sent me about the recipe to this, so I knew that it only needed two lemons, but I forgot, and I went to the store and I like panicked that I wasn't gonna have enough, so I bought literally fifteen lemons today. <laughs> the guy at the checkout was like oh, that's a lot of lemons. And I was like, yep. Why are we like this? Because I do the same thing. I'll like be like, okay, call for one, but just in case I like fuck up everything and like, I don't know, like things are terrible. I'm just going to get like a bunch. And then I have like all these weird things. I'm like, why? Why am I like this? Why did I do this? I mean, I guess lemons don't go bad and I can use them for other things, but I'm like, okay, now I just have like this giant bag of lemons. lemons. Well, I have a really good lemon poppy seed loaf recipe if you want. Oh, great. We'll link it. <laughs> we'll link it in our uh, in the episode. Um, what what is funny is today I was, I I got like I dissociated today at some point while I was working, 
And I was thinking about like, if I had a smoothie at Erewhon, what would it be? <laughs> because you know the new Haley well, Bieber smoothie. Well, it wouldn't be. I know, but but it wouldn't. I was well, we thinking know it, it would be like lemon coconut because I'm obsessed with like tart lemon things. But it would not be like this. It'd be better than this. I was literally gonna say it would not be this, but I think yeah. Oh, that's a really good question. Now I'm gonna want to know what mine would be. I feel like we should make it up for each other. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, I want. I want to have like a really weird random ingredient in mind that like you can only get at Erewhon or like Flamingo I feel State like it or needs something. To have, like like seventy dollars saffron honey. <laughs> Yours would definitely have saffron honey for sure. I was going to say, I feel like you yeah. need something like rose water. And <laughs> yes. It's basically oh, just like it's pistachio milk, uh, saffron <laughs> honey, and rose water. <laughs> Some like hyaluronic acid or something. Yep. Just to make it a little bit <laughs> thicker. <It's> healthy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, um, on that, <laughs> on that note, note let's, let's get started. Let's go ahead and jump on in. Um. So this episode is going to be pretty straightforward. There's not, I would say, like a ton of discourse that we can have on this film, although I do have something kind of fun, 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 that I want to talk about. Um, so today, our structure is going to be pretty similar to normal. We'll do like a quick overview, jump into the plot, which is just chaotic. We'll talk a little bit about the filming because I thought it was like funny and interesting. I want to dive quickly into kind of the legacy of the film. Um, and then, um, I did want to talk about box office poison. So that's the fun thing. Yes. And then we'll end with some fun facts. So bringing up baby is a 1938 American screwball comedy directed by Howard Hawks. And it stars Catherine Hepburn and our leading man, Cary Grant. Love him. Oh God. Baby Cary Grant in this movie is so cute. So perfect. Um, It was released by RKO Radio Pictures, and the film tells the story of a paleontologist in a number of predicaments involving a scatterbrained heiress and a leopard named Baby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you didn't know, and if you haven't seen this movie and you're just, like, seeing the title, it's not about an actual baby. No, 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 no. It's about a leopard named Baby. (laughs) Yes, and I actually believe, erroneously, in our last episode where we announced that we would be talking about this film, I said it was a monkey, it's a leopard, so I apologize. (laughs) not a monkey (laughs) it's so much better than a monkey um so the screenplay was actually adapted um from a short story by um dudley nichols and hager wilde which originally appeared in collier's weekly magazine on april 10th 1937 the script was specifically written for hepburn and was tailored to her personality Filming began in September of 1937 and wrapped in January of 1938, so pretty long filming, um, and it was way over schedule and way over budget. (laughs) (laughs) It was, uh, production was frequently delayed because of uncontrollable laughing fits between Hepburn and Grant, which, like, makes me so happy. That's so cute. (laughs) Um, And Hepburn really struggled with her comedic performance um, in this film. She was coached by another cast member, um, vaudeville veteran Walter Catlett, and um, the tame leopard that was used during um, the shooting is uh, really precious, and I can't wait to talk more about this cat because... I'm so like excited. Isn't she, this was her first comedy, I think, and she was like super self-conscious about it because I'm pretty sure Cary Grant is like vaudevillian trained, so this is like right up his alley for the time. I know people 
think of his later movies as being like these suave kind of like adventure movies but he was totally like a screwball comedy actor in the 30s he was yeah so I think what's interesting is this is kind of a weird point in both of their careers so Grant at this point had really only made a couple movies he was on the I'm not like older side but he was older than some of his some of the more like popular actors of the day like James Stewart um, and what's interesting is he kind of didn't know, like, if his career would ever take off, which is interesting. So he was still, I think this was maybe his second or third movie, and I believe that he was kind of around 35 at the time. So it, it's interesting because he was in an interesting point in his career where he wasn't the big name that we associate him as now. And Catherine Hepburn, this was a really big departure from her, um, in, in like a very different type of role. And she really struggled with kind of trying to get into, um, like leaning into that comedy side of herself even though this role was literally written for her it kind of took a while and she pulls it off so flawlessly too it's amazing yeah yeah all right well let's talk a little bit about this um just absolutely unhinged and chaotic plot um I didn't go into like all the details because it's just it would be too much so David Huxley who is played by Cary Grant is a mild-mannered paleontologist And for the past four years, he has been trying to assemble the skeleton of a brontosaurus, but he's missing one bone, the intercostal clavicle. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm just laughing thinking about knowing where this plot goes (laughs) and the fact that it's just centered around this fucking bone. (laughs) I know. It's, It's truly wild. I feel like the bone is the MacGuffin of this. The bone is totally the MacGuffin. That's so true. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's all about the clavicle. <laughs> and don't you forget it. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Anyway. Adding, adding to poor David Huxley's stress is his impending marriage to the dour Alice Swallow, played by Virginia Walker. Um, she just frankly, like, doesn't want to really get I mean she wants to get married but it's really more of like a professional thing she wants him to focus on his career and it's really not about love so sad (laughs) um and anyways so between this marriage which is clearly like not a love match as we would say and the need to impress Elizabeth Random who is this like super wealthy heiress who's considering a million dollar donation to the museum he is pretty stressed out so the day before the wedding, David meets Susan Vance, who's played by Katherine Hepburn, by chance on a golf course when she plays his ball. David is out golfing with Mrs. Random's lawyer, Alexander Peabody, who is going to make the decision of what to do with this million dollars on um, behalf of Miss, Miss Random. Um, so he's like really trying to get into this guy's good graces. Um, but Miss Vance is a free-spirited, scatterbrained young lady and she's just you know like really not based in logic um these qualities lead to several frustrating incidents which just like absolutely snowball snowball into chaos (laughs) it's so funny i mean honestly just vibes for susan she is just Just vibing so hard and i won't go into like the details of like what exactly happens but i do have to say the scene where they are at um like the clubhouse or the whatever like the night is the one of the funniest scenes in the entire history of comedy hilarious um highly recommend again this is like one of those scenes kind of similar to um last episode where we talked about the assembly line in modern times that i feel like 
this is one of those key comedic scenes that continues to influence popular culture today. You will see it in a lot of sitcoms because it's just so funny. <laughs> yeah, a lot of clothing ripping, all of that comes from this. It comes from this scene for sure. <laughs> Her dress is also immaculate too. I'm pretty sure it's gold. The dress is so good and I want it. I want it so bad. So meanwhile, Susan's brother Mark has sent her a tame leopard named Baby, who is played by Nisa, in case you were wondering uh, the name of the Oh my god, I was wondering. Yes, I was. Um, Nisa did not get top billing though. Nisa did not, and it feels like a shame. So Sweet Baby um, was sent over from Brazil, and its tameness is helped by hearing the song, I Can't Give You Anything But Love, which is hilarious. (laughs) So cute. (laughs) Susan gets confused and thinks that David is a zoologist and manipulates him into accompanying her and taking Baby up to her farm in Connecticut. Complications arise when Susan falls in love with him, and she tries to keep him at her house as long as possible, even hiding his clothes to prevent him from um, marrying Alice. Meanwhile, David's prized intercostal clavicle is delivered, and um, Susan's aunt's dog, George, played by Skippy, takes it and buries it somewhere. Skippy, you will know and you will remember, is a, fa- is a familiar face. Well, maybe you'll talk about that later. I, it's one of my fun facts. So we'll, okay, I'm not going to uh, we'll give come it away. Back as, as soon as I was saying it out loud, I figured it would be, and then I, I was know. like, I'm not going to. I'm not going to give it away. I want to just point out though that he gets the bone delivered like while he's in the city and just brings it on this journey with himself. <laughs> he didn't know. He didn't know. He did not. So he's just carrying around this box with like a bone in it, with like a weird dinosaur bone. <laughs> Also, for some reason, I thought that the intercostal clavicle would be much larger than it was, and I was kind of disappointed. Yeah, it might be, this might be Hollywood, a Hollywoodized intercostal clavicle. <laughs> but I feel like they'd want to go bigger, no? Perhaps not. Yeah, it's method. It's it method. method. It is method. <laughs> um, anyways, so Skippy, sorry, George, played by Skippy, takes the bone and buries it somewhere. Meanwhile, Susan's aunt has arrived and she discovers David in a negligee in one of like the funniest scenes ever. I, it's so funny. Also, I want that robe. I don't know. Yeah, 100%. Me too. It's so good. It's like what you would wear if you were like a rich Hollywood starlet in the 20s who like murdered her husband. It's very like Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm obsessed. To David's dismay, she turns out to be the potential donor, Elizabeth Random. A second message from Mark makes clear that the leopard is for Elizabeth, as she always wanted one. Baby and George run off, um, and the zoo is called to help capture Baby. Um, Susan and David race to find Baby before the zoo, and mistaking a dangerous leopard, who is confusingly also played by the same leopard that plays Baby. So if you, like I, got confused about, like, what was going on, that might be why. Um, The range of this leopard, my goodness. From tame to untame. It's, like, really (laughs) impressive. That that leopard was method. (laughs) From tame to untame should be the tagline of this movie. <laughs> it truly should. It truly should. Life imitates art. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> so this is not baby. This is just like a random leopard that escaped from a nearby circus, um, which is mistaken for baby. So they let this this like wild leopard out of the cage. 
They're then jailed by a befuddled town policeman, uh, Constable Slocum, which is just an absolutely unfortunate name. Um, and they are <laughs> acting strangely at the house of Dr. Fritz Lerman, where they had cornered the circus leopard thinking it was baby on his roof. Slocum obviously does not believe his story because they literally seem absolutely out of their minds. Um, and yeah, Susan they seem insane. Susan decides that to make things better, she tells them that there are members of the leopard gang calling herself Swing and Door Susie and David Jerry the Nipper, which is just... Again, if people could just communicate clearly, uh, this plot would be just much... It wouldn't happen, happen. frankly. Yeah. Anyways, because apparently that would make it better. Eventually, Alexander Peabody, um, which is the lawyer, shows up to verify everyone's identity, and Susan, who escaped out of a window during the police interview, unwittingly drags the highly irritated circus leopard, who she thinks is baby, into the jail. David saves her using a chair to shoo the big cat into a cell. Sometime later, David finds Susan, who has been jilted by Alice because of her, um, and he is located high on a platform working on the brontosaurus reconstruction at the museum. He finally has the last piece. Um, after, after showing him the missing bone because she's found it, she followed George around for three days, and finally he dug up the fucking bone. Um, and so Susan, against his warming warnings, climbs up a tall ladder next to the dinosaur to be closer to him in a scene that is also hilarious as she's like swaying back and forth it's on this so ladder. It's so funny. It's so good. Um, she tells David that her aunt has given her the million dollars and she wants to donate it to the museum. Aw. So cute. That's nice, but I would have kept that money. I would have as well, but she's so sweet. So. <laughs> she's a very and good... She loves him. She does. Um, yes, so they profess each their love for each other. Um, David tells her that that day that they spent together was the best day of his life, which is really cute. Um, and meanwhile, Susan is just like unconsciously swinging the Absolutely ladder. Absolutely swaying. To side. Um, like very close to tipping over every time. Yeah. So they finally kind of realize what's going on. Susan freaks out. She climbs onto the skeleton that is being reconstructed, causing it to collapse. <laughs> David grabs her just as she's falling, and after she dangles for a few seconds, he's finally able to lift her onto the platform. After she talks him into forgiving her without saying a word um, about anything but half-heartedly complaining about the loss of years of work, (laughs) David just resigns himself into a future of chaos and embraces her. It's so cute, and like I'm pretty sure they mentioned in the beginning of the movie that he's been working on this dinosaur for like four years. Yeah, it's been four years. <laughs> so, and it's massive. It's like a huge dinosaur, and she like just the whole thing just collapses, and she's just like that whole scene is hysterical because she's swaying, so but she's good. like making the ladder move. Like it's her fault. Yeah. Like she's not just like off balance. She's, no, like, she's the one actively and, like, moving. And it's <laughs> funny too. I think why it's such a good comedy is like it's the pitch of the ladder is getting greater it's with each so like good. sway so yeah <laughs> and she doesn't the realize till the just, end what's happening no. and then david kind of was like oh my god <laughs> it's so chaotic and amazing and then just the whole like dinosaur collapses and she's like oh no david i'm, I'm sorry, sorry. He's like, oh well and he's like whatever he's like at <laughs> least i'm getting laid later <laughs> <laughs> so true I was going to make an inappropriate joke, but I won't. (laughs) 
I'm glad. But um, but it's hilarious because like the plot is like not that long, but it so much happens in it because it's just so unhinged that like you feel like it's very long because they're like all of these scenes have they go on forever. Like the scenes themselves very much utilize the rule of three and go on forever. Like, no, he gets up and going. follows... Yeah. That scene where they're sitting at the dinner table and he gets up and, like, follows the dog around and then we'll sit down and he does it again. Like, follow. It's just hysterical. It's so but it's funny. just And nobody will communicate properly with one another. David seems, like, actually insane. Like, he looks like he's unhinged <laughs> and insane. He and looks just amazing. Yeah, he looks a little bit... Yeah, absolutely. He's not adding to anything here. Absolutely. He definitely not. doesn't play Absolutely like a straight not. man in this film. <laughs> no, he does not. <laughs> so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the filming. So like I mentioned, um, filming for this went way over budget. The original budget was $767,000. Um, and they just had a lot of issues in the beginning getting Hepburn to get into character. She like was overreacting. She was trying so hard to be funny. And so they finally brought in um, Walter Catlett to kind of like help coach her. Um, After like, it just took her a while. And so finally, I think where she like landed and why this film is such a brilliant success, like, you know, almost, you know, how, however many years later, 80 years later, um, is because she really started to just like act naturally and play herself for the rest of the shoot but again it like took a while to get there yeah um, it definitely feels like she's not really acting I feel like that's just like, like kind of how she, she is ta- it's an exaggerated version of like kind of who she is exactly she has the like um, the transatlantic accent it's so good yeah I mean she's an eccentric rich person I think that's like who kind of she is but maybe not as chaotic but I, she definitely is just playing like a caricature of herself which is hilarious no it's perfect so, um, the leopard were played, like I mentioned, by the same leopard named Nisa. Um, the big cat had a trainer named Olga Celeste who would just stand there with a whip during the shooting, which I'm like, this would like not be allowed today. Like that is not kosher at all. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> For the most part, I would say things like generally went pretty well considering they had like an actual leopard on set, except... There was one time where Hepburn, like, spun around and her skirt twirled, and Nisa, like, lunged at her. Um, So Celeste had to, like, use the whip, so. Oh, shit. Oh it was, yeah, it was pretty intense. Like, overall, Hepburn was, like, pretty unafraid. She used to wear, like, very heavy perfume because it would keep Nisa, like, calm, apparently. Um, But what's funny is that Grant was terrified of that checks out of the leopard and so for most of the scenes where the two are interacting they're either done with like a stand-in or they actually did quite a lot of special effects or like had different things that they were doing um so that they didn't have them like interacting face to face interesting yeah that checks out that Catherine Hepburn was like absolutely unafraid and Cary Grant was just mortified to be around this leopard I don't know I just think it's so sweet (laughs) It's really sweet. It's so cute. <laughs> yeah, so quite a few of, like, the goofs of this film are really related to that. Like, there's, in the scene where Grant has baby on a leash, you can see that they had to, like, literally hand paint the leash onto the film. <laughs> because they, like, yeah. Anyways, so it was, like, a whole thing. So the film was eventually completed um, in 1938, and it came about 
$330,000 over budget, which oh, shit. was pretty, I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. Um, the studio is also pretty unhappy because in addition to it being over budget and like far, you know, over the like, you know, time that they the were supposed schedule, to, yeah, yeah, over the schedule, um, they also really didn't like Grant's glasses and they hated Catherine Hepburn's hair in this film. What is so iconic though? I know. I don't. That's crazy. Yeah, it's just funny because. And I okay. I kind of love. I kind of love that they like. I like. You know how for women they just like slap a pair of glasses on her to like make her look homely. It's the they did that here, but they did it for Cary Grant. It's so funny because they're like you literally can't do anything to make him look unattractive. I know. <laughs> like, I it's know. It's so funny. It just made him look even like he cuter. just he can't he can't be nerdy. Like it's just he's so suave even though he's like supposed to be a total nerd and. No, it's perfect. It kind of reminds me of in some like it hot where he's like wearing the glasses and pretending to be like the rich guy. Yeah. Well, didn't he base his? He that's based true. He based that guy of, on that's right, Gar- that's right. Yeah. So it's very yeah, much so that, which is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Um. Yeah. So a large part of that going over budget is just because um, Grant and Hepburn's salaries rose like pretty significantly. They had been contracted for the film for a certain amount, but them having to go like. So far over schedule, um, ended up really like pushing out their compensation. Um, and the director also ended up getting paid um quite a hefty sum as well. Um, in addition, RKO was so unhappy with um the director that he received extra money just to terminate his contract so they didn't have to work with him again. Oh damn, how Howard uh Howard, Howard Hughes. Ho- Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks, yeah. sorry, Howard Hawks. Uh who also did um his girl Friday that we discussed a while ago. He did. Yes. Yeah. Did he? Yes, he did because, okay. and we can talk about it a little bit later when we talk about I, box office. I feel like because I have some this information film is about that. considered by a lot by many to be like one of his most successful or best films, but I mean it's kind of interesting because I would argue his girl Friday is more successful. Yeah. It is, and I, I have some know. information that I will d- oh. divulge about that. Okay. Perfect. I can't wait. Well, let's talk a little bit about The Legacy, because what's interesting is that it had really strong previews and trade reviews, so a lot of the press that it was getting was very favorable, Um, but the film actually performed incredibly erratically. It did well kind of on both the West and East Coasts, but it really faltered in the Midwest, and it flopped big in New York, which is, like, weird to me. Yeah. That's really interesting. It ended up getting pulled from Radio City Music Hall after just one week. So it was... Oh, wow. Yeah, it did, like, very Huge poorly. Flop. Yeah, Howard Hawks would later say that he felt the problem was because he failed to put any normal characters into the films. There wasn't really anybody for the audience to identify with. Um, and it really wasn't until the 1950s where the reputation began to grow, kind of similar to Wizard of Oz, because it was shown on television. So that's really where it started to become kind of the staple. Um, but at the time, it was yeah received very poorly by audiences, and it just didn't have the success that I think a lot of people thought it would. That's crazy. Like It's so interesting to me, and we talk about this with so many different movies that are considered like such classics now that there was a time where they were very unpopular and it took them being on television to get them to be popular which is just it's like so fascinating to me and it makes me think like are there any movies that were just like wow that movie fucking sucks that come out now that are going to be like considered classics in like 80 years no morbius (laughs) (laughs) 
Everyone's like, what? This film was such a, a great... After the 700th theatrical treasure. release in eight years, Sony Pictures finally has a hit. We finally did they it. They finally break even in like 40 <laughs> They said we would fail. They said we would never they make it. They said it couldn't be done. But we did it. We did it, Joe. Much like the main character, Morpheus never dies. Oh my god. Well, well I thought that we could pause here because I'm actually interested to see if you feel like Hawks' analysis of why the film wasn't successful, if you feel like that's correct. Yeah, so that's that was my little bit of information that I was gonna divulge because I so I do think that that is why the movie wasn't successful and I do think that his his um his direction in His Girl Friday was an absolute reaction to that because in His Girl Friday they add characters that are very dry to like balance out like the the main like fiance um I don't remember his name but he's like he's literally so monotone and it's to balance out the chaotic nature of that movie and I think in this film and it, with an audience in the 30s like it's it's just not going to be appealing to like a very largely rural kind of simpler person and and I think what's also very interesting about this movie is not that Cary Grant's character is super wealthy but it's it's largely centered around very wealthy people and I think in the time of the depression that's not going to really be like very attractive um to the larger audience because you have a lot of people struggling for work and struggling for money so seeing something where they're just like why is all this money being wasted like a million dollars being wasted on this stuff why is there a leopard like who cares about this it's almost like I think that it it's it's, it like could have been escapism I think it's just there's so much the chaos is so stressful that it's not really like it could I could see it having not performed well solely because it just like what it might not have been like an enjoyable (laughs) movie to watch it is extremely enjoyable now to watch it because it's it's just so funny like I just think that there's so many iconic scenes in this movie and it's really endearing and really funny now but I can see that you know audiences in the 30s were very different than they are now and I think people they're very much um movies that were being made at the time were being made as like a reaction to what people were wanting and so they're they're all the movies that are being made are movies that have people that are relatable to the audience and then this comes out and it's just like so wacky and unhinged there's just like nothing believable about it no I think that's true and I think you bring up a good point too like I think most other screwball comedies really do have a clear difference in socioeconomic class and I think here while there is a difference like Cary Grant's character is doing enough things that are kind of like at least passing as higher like higher class whereas you know when we talk about some of the other I would say like wildly successful films that really connected with audiences like especially in this time period um, it is more about someone from like a higher station who has to experience life without that and you really don't get that in this screwball comedy there's a lot of physical comedy there is kind of a disconnection in class but it's it's more like Cary Grant is catapulted into you know a more upper class household which I just don't think like reads the same as and I think I don't know if I mean you might be thinking of the same thing but in comparing it to something like it happened one night where you're you're getting like 
the point of screwball comedy as it was coming out was to mock the wealthy and like you have my man godfrey and it happened one night where you have these like rich characters who are just totally out of out of you know out of depth and just totally unhinged but they're being grounded and being kind of made fun of by these normal people quote unquote that the audience can relate to and that's how they're able to laugh at the unhinged chaotic nature of the movie in this movie you don't even have anybody to ground the audience and be like why are we even here and i think that that definitely played into why it might not have been as popular as it was because i think in looking at other screwball comedies like you said even looking at like a movie like the wizard of oz you know dorothy is from a from like a rural farming family and her and her whole entire experience is her like longing to get away and dreaming about this other world and that's that's relatable even more so than something like this i think for audiences at the time absolutely yeah i completely agree with that analysis i think that that's spot on and i think yeah again it makes sense that it would be successful on the coasts and really just not connect with the heartland if you will um and and i think now when we watch it like you can enjoy it for what it is but i could see where at the time it just would have been like really (laughs) you know to a lot of audiences much like morpheus just kidding um Maybe one day we'll understand the genius of what they were trying. Oh my god. It's too over our heads right now. It's too too far ahead of its time. It is, it is. Um, So what's interesting is I think um, in terms of kind of the romantic comedy, this film takes a lot of themes kind of from like Shakespearean plots. It has a lot of kind of much ado about nothing as you like it. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's kind of this precursor to a lot of, um, I think the rom-coms that you and I grew up with, um, in kind of the late nineties, early two thousands, which again, really harkened back to kind of those very like age old themes and kind of love triangles, um, just, you know, miscommunication, exactly. all of the bungles. comedy of errors, if you will, if you will. Um, and the last thing that I think is kind of fun is that um, a lot of people believe that Catherine Hepburn's character um, is cited as one of the early examples of the manic pixie dream girl film archetype so there you go oh I did not think about that but that that attracts is it just because she's manic (laughs) just because she's like actually manic perhaps perhaps it definitely does track (laughs) yeah a chaotic like rich girl for sure Mm -hmm. totally tracks. yeah so I thought that was kind of fun so let's switch gears again. We're going to talk a little bit about box office poison because uh, yes. following uh, this film, Katherine Hepburn actually had a really hard time because she was declared box office poison. Um, some could speculate that maybe that's why this film also didn't do super well. Um, and, you know, just kind of adding to her, you know, image around being this like bad thing and I don't know if people would would actually know what that term is I mean it's pretty self-explanatory but it was like a it was like a pretty widely used term in film in like kind of between the 30s and like 50s for actors that their movies like bombed at the box office and, and they so were becoming when they like were, a liability for the studios yeah and so when they were deemed box office poison it kind of meant that if they put out a movie you would assume it was going to be bad which is really, it's, it's, it's like almost counterintuitive to think of Katherine Hepburn in that way. Yeah, well, let's get into it because I actually think that this is fascinating because I was wondering where this came from. Like, who was it that coined this term and why was it specifically applied to her? So I think we can kind of speculate about why. But 
Box Office Poison is the title that was given um, in a popular... Um, so it was actually an advertisement. I don't know if you... Did you know oh, this? Oh, I... No. So it, I, for some reason, thought it came like either from a film critic or from kind of within the industry, but it was actually a large advertisement that was taken out in um, the May 4th, 1938 edition of The Hollywood Reporter by the Independent Theater Owners Association. So it was like people who owned theaters took this ad out. And it was penned by the group's president, Harry Brandt, and it was had this like big red border around the ad, and the title was "Wake Up, Hollywood Producers," and oh my let God. me read you <laughs> what it said because Harry Harry was unhinged. Um, Harry had a bone to pick. Oh my All God! Right, let me read it to you. Wake up! Exclamation point! Hollywood producers. Practically all of the major studios are burdened with stars whose public appeal is negligible receiving tremendous salaries necessitated by contractual obligations. Having these stars under contract and paying them sizable sums weekly, the studios find themselves in, un- in the unhappy position to have to put these box office deterrents in expensive pictures in the hopes that some return on the investment might be had. This condition is not only burdensome to the studios and its stockholders, but is likewise no boon to the exhibitors who in the final analysis suffer by the non-drawing power of these players. Among these players, whose dramatic ability is unquestioned, but whose box office draw is nil, can be numbered Mae West, Edward Arnold, Garbo, Joan Crawford, Catherine Hepburn, and many, many others. (laughs) Okay. So people that were like also closeted. (laughs) Basically. Okay. Garbo, for instance, is a tremendous draw for Europe, which does not help theater owners in the United States. Oh my god, fuck off, Harry. Jesus fuck you, Christ. Harry. Hepburn turned in excellent performances in Stage Door and Bringing Up Baby, but both pictures died. The combined salaries <laughs> of these stars take millions out of the industry and millions out of the box office. We are not against the star system, mind you. But we don't think it should determine, um, oh, sorry, but we don't think it should dominate the production of pictures. We want the Myrna Loys and the Gary Coopers and the Sonia Hennies. But we want them when they get value, not when they drive people away from the box office. And here we meet up with a situation where the exhibitors suffer for the producers' mistakes. Producers know the stars whose attract business because there are a few producers who do not have theater affiliates. And those who do not have, wait, and those who do not just have to read their percentage contracts to find out which stars bring in the shekels. I see. Yet so afraid are the studios of losing a star that they tie them up for many years with the result that stars continue to receive salaries far after their box office rating slide. Kay Francis, for instance, is still receiving many thousands a week from Warners on an old contract. Yet so poor is her draw that she is now making B pictures. Paramount showed cleverness and consideration for exhibitors by buying off Dietrich's contract, which called for more for, for one more picture. Dietrich, too, is poison for the box office. Don't be rude to my girl Marlena. She's the best. I know. They're, they're, he's being rude to, like, all of our queens I know, right now. Because I think he just hates strong women is the issue. I think so, too. <laughs> he's, he's literally pointing out Mae West, Garbo, Catherine Hepburn, and Marlena Dietrich. Like, come on, man. We see your fucked up agenda. Anyways, he goes on to say, there is no doubt but that stars draw business and when they do, they are worth every cent they get. 
When they do not, it is unfair to the industry at large and especially the exhibitor for a studio to continue paying them top salaries and putting them in top bracket pictures. From recent producer statements, it would seem that they are just about getting around to that idea. The success of the Jones family pictures, the Mr. Motos and the Charlie Chans, as well as the Judge Hardy pictures and others is a straw in the wind. Producers are now or soon will be concentrating on the making of good pictures, not merely surrounding a $5,000 a week star with any sort of vehicle. Sound judgment and good business sense are valuable assets in any industry that is far from, from being an art. He's a dick. I fucking hate him. Oh my god. Okay, so my first red flag is his grammatically incorrect title, Wake Up! Exclamation point, Hollywood Producers. <laughs> the fuck is that about immediate no for me for harry Brooks. i will also say dick. maybe it's because i didn't read it with like a 30s accent but that was a very like a lot to oh talk yeah through. it is it does no, not it read is. well no it's wordy and like i i think i understand his point that like the star system is antiquated and people are making too much money while not doing anything but his approach by just attacking strong women who frankly he attacked like the people that are being deemed box office poison are like strong women or those kind of like the open secret hollywood bisexuals which i think that there's like obviously a, a correlation not there. A coinc- <laughs> yeah i don't yeah. think that's a coincidence but um while i love myrna loy i don't th- like i don't want him to use myrna loy as an example against these women like don't pit her against her her other strong women no myrna loy like, would not stand it's just for interesting it. i no, and I just, I just, that's just stupid. Like, I just don't agree with anything. I don't agree with his approach at all. And, like, that guy, like, also, they all had the last laugh because they're all considered, like, the best of the best now. Well, it's so. hilarious, too, because the off, pictures Harry. that he, like, holds up as being the future are ones that none of us have ever heard of. So, clearly, I literally never heard of any of them. of time. Also, tell just me like you don't have connections without telling me you don't have connections. Like, you really... You're literally so insignificant, right. you had to take out an ad in The Hollywood Reporter. Like, you don't have anyone you could call to, like, raise these grievances to. Like Yeah, also, like, <laughs> why is he so, like, bothered by the, like, why is this, per- why is the Hollywood studio system, like, personally affecting his life? It's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't think, I, I feel like the beef is with the star system, like, the Hollywood studio yeah. system. It is. But, again, he's just, like, choosing to blame, like, strong female leads for this inability to be box office draws. Which, again, wasn't even true. No, and also, like, the the people, like, are forgetting, like, these people were, like, that is the point. They were contracted and they did not get a say no, in what they, they were in. they didn't get a say. Like, they had to be in these films. Yeah. So it's like, if you have a beef yeah. with anything, it's really around producers or, you know, different executives picking films that weren't resonating <laughs> because yeah. they had, yes. you know, they had blinders on. So again, it just feels like a weird bone to pick with very specific people, which I feel like is very much intentional. Like let's blame women very much for a problem that is very much driven by men, but I digress. Ugh, a tale as old as time. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, what's funny is in his obituary, did not mention that he is the one who coined box office poison, which I think is interesting. That is really funny. In his obituary, fuck off Harry Brand. Yeah, bye, <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> Said no one. Um, 
Anyways, but luckily for Katherine Hepburn, what is interesting is that some of the people who are labeled box office poison, it did end their careers. Um, I think especially some of the the stars who were kind of a little bit older or trying to make kind of the, the jump um, from like silence to talkies, it, it was a career ender. It's interesting because this title didn't necessarily impact everyone negatively for the long term, but it was, I think, it did impact their careers for at least a little bit. I think like Mae West is an example of that being considered that plus the enforcement of the Hayes Code like did end her career because that is what the kinds of movies she was making that would later be considered make her like kind of box office poison and not like appropriate films like that's what she built her brand on and I think when she couldn't do that anymore and when people just you know were kind of manipulated into not seeing her films and and she started getting labeled that way it did actually end her career I mean we we look back at Mae West, West films now and you know recognize that she's like a total icon but at the time, you know, she didn't really do much after the no, you know, late thirties. No, I mean, 30s. she was kind of like a pariah. Like everyone, you know, hated her and did all this stuff to undermine her her legacy and her films. Oh, I'm sorry. A story about um, people turning their back on women and treating them poorly. <laughs> we don't know about that. I don't know what you're talking didn't about. Know about that, that seems that's so what so new and exciting. How untimely, Sarah. That doesn't exist anymore, don't you know? We've uh, grown past that. Everything is fine. Everything We've is eradicated fine. any type of misogyny and everything is okay. <laughs> but yeah, I think it is interesting though, because Katherine Hepburn was able to kind of recover her career even after being labeled box office poison she went on to produce a couple more films actually a couple more with Cary Grant they started a total of four films together including a Philadelphia story which might be kind of their most famous film together um I think it's the one that revived her career as well because she bought out her own contract and was like fuck did. you I'm not gonna yeah. do these movies that you keep putting well, me in they, they basically make tried to own. kill her career they put her in this like yeah b-list film that had something to do with like a chicken coop and it was just she was like fuck you guys. <laughs> well, I think I think the difference between Katherine Hepburn and like that not a lot of other stars had this um ability to pull themselves out of this is that her money wasn't completely entangled with this her success in the studio films because she was independently wealthy because her family was wealthy. So she was able to be like, well, I don't really like I'm not I don't, I'm not doing this for the money. So I can buy my own contract out and then make the movies I want to make. So they didn't really have a hold on her, which unfortunately is not the story for everybody. Um, So she did have that ability to kind of, you know, get herself out of that situation and really like start choosing what movies, you know, she wanted to do. And, And the Philadelphia story was the one that kind of revived her career, which... I mean, it's a, her, that performance is really good. I mean, it's a wonderful film. Yeah, really funny, but also really nuanced performance for, from her, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah, fabulous film. And yeah, it allowed her to, to make kind of that, that comeback. But I think that's a great point that you bring up. And I think, yeah, if you didn't have money or you were kind of later in your career, this article that, or this ad, it wasn't even an article, it was an advertisement that got taken out, really did end, you know, some, some women's careers, which is so fucked up. Well, any other thoughts? Otherwise, we can do some fun facts and wrap it up. No. Yeah. Let's do Let's go into fun fact corner. I, I love can't fun wait. fact corner. Well, you already know this, but... Um, I know. I'm sorry. I like... No. I was it's so okay. Excited. Because we just... We love this dog. But um, the Terrier George um, was played by Skippy, who also was Asta in the Thin our Man. Our favorite dog. Our favorite dog. Sorry, when you get a dog named Asta, I literally can't wait. I will. It's perfect. I can't wait. 
Um, and Skippy also starred in um, The Awful Truth with Cary Grant as well. Yes. So, yeah. Skippy was Skippy and quite Cary prolific. Grant go. Skippy was like the highest paid dog in Hollywood for a minute there. I'm pretty he sure. <laughs> like, yes. I'm, like, I actually think that was the Skippy thing. Skippy was not box office poison. Skippy was not, and I'm pretty sure he appeared in like every single Thin Man movie, and there's like six of them. I know. So. We love you, Skippy. Great. We love you, Skippy. Shout out. Shout out to Skippy. Um, so the scene in which Susan's dress is ripped was actually inspired by something that happened to Cary Grant, which I think is funny. So, oh, this wasn't in the story. This is something that he kind of brought to the table and it was something that people thought was so funny that they decided to incorporate it in. So he was at the Roxy theater one night and his pants zipper got caught on the back of a woman's dress so he started following, oh following her because it was, like, stuck. Um, oh, my God. And he told the story to um, the director, Howard Hawks, and Hawks loved it so much that he put it in the movie, which I think is hilarious. That is so funny. That scene is fucking hysterical. It's so funny. It's, it's just, like... so good. Oh, my God. It's so great. It's just everything it's about it is comedic so perfection. And again, like... And it's just... <sighs> it's, like, perfectly balanced between the two of them because she rips his coattails first and then he, like rips her dress like it's just so great it's so funny well and it's so funny because she doesn't realize what's happened and he's like using his top half to like try to cover her and she's like get off of me she's like really annoying you pervert (laughs) it's so good oh my god it's so funny another interesting and kind of fun fact about this film is that um david's response to aunt elizabeth asking him why he's wearing a woman's dressing gown it's considered by many film historians to be the first use of the word gay in its roughly modern sense. Um, he responds, because I went gay all of a sudden. Um, the original meaning, which is kind of happy or carefree, but at the time this would have been kind of part of um, the changing vernacular. And so it is interesting because this is very, very much what a lot of people kind of pinpoint as like in film where we can see that word being used in a different way. So interesting i that 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 line does stand out to me i i it's noticeable yeah yeah and when i watched it i was like oh, i wonder if if that was meant in that kind of the more traditional way but it was interesting hearing this and what's inter- what even more interesting is that it was actually an ad lib from grant himself so it wasn't in the script oh oh yeah. he's so good he improvs all the time howard hawks was like the first director that like really allowed his actors to improv which i love yeah well, I have one more uh, fun fact, actually, about Howard Hawks, because this made me laugh and is perhaps why the film was over schedule and over budget. Um, on some days, Howard Hawks canceled shooting and took the cast to the races. And when he was particularly pleased with one scene, he bought the cast two cases of champagne. So, oh my god, <laughs> it's like job well done. He's very much like the definition of like treat yourself. He's like we. Oh my god, he's so non nonchalant. They do like one like like minute task, and he's like, "All right, champagne for yeah. everyone. Cancel shooting for the rest he's of the like, day. We're going to the races. We've done it. We're geniuses. We're off to the races." And I was like, "Yeah, I don't know if it was because uh, Grant and Hepburn were laughing so much. It sounds like this might have been like the bigger problem." <laughs> Also, yeah, like, R.I.P. to just having free-flowing alcohol on movie sets, because I'm pretty sure, yet again, we're going to bring up The Thin Man. Pretty sure everyone's, like, actually intoxicated during that movie. Yeah, 99% sure everyone was 100% plastered. Yeah. Similar to how I feel right now with this one. uh, Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, that hit me. I didn't even like notice when it hit me, but I'm like, ooh. I noticed when it hit I'm me because I felt a little befuddled. <laughs> I was like trying to read this and I was like, words. Help. Help me. Help me. <laughs> oh, man. I Ooh. knew we were going to just be like so unhinged laughing during this month because these movies are just so chaotic and amazing. So chaotic, but so perfect. This was a really fun one. Sara, I'd love to end with your final thoughts on this film. I would love to give you my final thoughts on this film. <laughs> um... <laughs> Oh man, I uh, I think this is a really good example of like a traditional screwball comedy in the sense of um, not necessarily like the social construct or context of when screwball comedy was coming out, but the actual um, kind of comedy that's being performed. And I think this movie is just the execution and the kind of comedy and um, the writing style is so unique and so unlike anything else that comes out at that time. It's so witty and so fast-paced. I think you get really lucky when you have someone like Cary Grant and, and Catherine Hepburn able to kind of bounce lines off each other because of their the way that they speak, and I think that really helps the, the movie. So I think it's a great example of a screwball comedy. It's fucking hilarious. It aged really well. It, um, I, like, the jokes are still super funny. Like, I was laughing out loud at some scenes, and I think much like in modern times, there are a lot of things that you can see and be like, oh, they clearly reference this in, in later movies. And kind of like you said earlier, this is one of the movies that is the, kind of lays the foundation for the rom-coms that we see come out in the, in the 90s that we grew up watching. This is definitely one of the ones that those directors were inspired by, and you can, you can definitely tell. And, it's just like so much fun. Like it's you're not you're time. not yeah. not having a good time watching this movie. And it's it's a great. It's a great one. I would recommend it to absolutely everybody. I agree. I think this is a really good film. Again, if you're maybe not an old film person, this is kind of a good like segue into it. It's really fun. It's really enjoyable. I feel like for me the mark of a good older film is like I felt engaged the whole time. Like I wasn't you know, like things still hit. I mean, there's always some kind of fun, like weird historical differences between what people used to do and what people do now. But I would say like overall, everything still pretty much like, again, chaotic, um, but, but very entertaining and just really fun. Very much. Very much so. It's foundational. I think it's a classic screwball comedy if you're interested in the genre of romantic comedies or the, you know, the evolution of comedy films like this is definitely going to be one that you're going to watch i mean it's it's just foundational i would say i couldn't agree more well this has been such a fun episode um should we uh tell people where to find us and what we're doing next yes um if you are so inclined you can find us on instagram where we post a lot of movie related information and if you are curious about our cocktail content and why we are the way we are <laughs> when we do these episodes. Um, you can follow us on TikTok. Both of those places, you can just uh, find us at Hitchcock Happy Hour. Um, TikTok, we have all of our, uh, not all of them, but most of the recipes. That, the ones that we slacking. like and the ones that we think. Sarah's very kind. It's, well, no, <laughs> that wasn't what I meant. I was just going to say, we only post the ones that we think are worth it. That's we don't true, like the drink. We won't, we won't post Some of them, I'm like, I don't want the internet to think that I'm like associated with this cocktail. Like, I'm, I'm not a, we're not making a video about the, um, what was that one drink we did during spooky season? The cider one? Oh, that one was so gross. What was it called? I don't remember the, what it was called. The it was cider a, margarita? It was a, 
The cider margarita, the, the blight cider on my existence. And then there was oh the cider God. spritz, and both of them were terrible. They were both so bad. I think it was the cider margarita that was, like, the worst thing I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I don't think either of us finished them, which, like, I think both you and I will... I mean, I'll pretty much drink we'll, we'll whatever. We'll go like, through it, yeah. I'll, I, I usually end up at least, like, sipping it. That one I had, like, one sip, and I was like, I can't. I can't do this. Yeah, it was so bad. It was so bad. It was disgusting. <laughs> An absolute blight. I think we I think we voted it a blight. I think we <laughs> did vote it a blight, yeah. Yeah. Um, but... You won't find any blights on our TikTok. You'll find only amazing cocktails. Only the ones that we bangers. Like. So only bangers. Straight bangers. Um, so check us out on social media. We post all of our content there, and uh, you can find out what we're doing next. And um, if you want cocktail inspiration, check us out on TikTok. So, yeah, that's where you can find us. And um, next week, join us when we discuss probably my favorite of the screwball comedy films, uh with our queen Barbara Stanwyck, Ugh, the Lady Eve. Her. It's probably her most famous comedy it's film. So good. One of the best um comedic movies of all time and probably one of my favorite. I think it's I think it's it's also one of the most like um I would say it's definitely one of the most pretentious of uh of of uh screwball comedies for sure. Which like we kind it's of It's a love Preston Foster because movie. We are we also it. pretentious. So <laughs> it's very witty. It's great. Um and so we're I'm excited to talk about that. And it'll be a nice case of like mistaken identity, but it'll be fun. We love so. a good case of mistaken identity. Keeps it fresh. I think it's like per it's like purposeful mistaken identity, but anyway. <laughs> I can't wait. Barbara Stanwyck um, is gonna be my queen now and forever. Barbara Stanwyck is our queen and this is one of her most famous performances and probably her most famous comedic performance. So I'm very excited to talk about her as a comedian. It's gonna be great. Um but until then Cheers. cheers.